0: Well, to really get into the mindset of Jesus' followers and kind of how they responded to the death and the resurrection of Christ, we really need to kind of take a step back and kind of see the the big picture of really what their three-year experience with Jesus had been like. Twelve ordinary guys, blue-collar guys, are kind of plucked out of the crowd and and asked to come alongside Jesus, and, and I think they got a lot more than they bargained for, Because during that three-year stretch, you see just unbelievable um, miracles and healings. Blind people can now see, and and deaf people can now hear, and mute people can now talk, and lame people are walking. Jesus walks on water. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus calms the storms. On a couple of different occasions, he miraculously feeds over 5,000 people. And to top it all off, we know that he raised at least three different people from the dead. And I love the way the disciple John sums up his account of Jesus' life. The last verse of the Gospel of John says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them are written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. And so in other words, John is saying, Guys, what we have here recorded in Scripture really only scratches the surface of everything that Jesus did during that three-year time. And the Gospels talk again and again about the huge crowds that would follow Jesus. And each town that he went to, he would be besieged uh, with people who were desperate. Desperate to be healed. Desperate to to hear the good news that he was sharing uh, as he talked about the kingdom of God. And in the midst of that sweeping popularity, time and again, Jesus gets his disciples together. And he says, listen, listen my ultimate mission is that I have to go to Jerusalem and die and then be resurrected three days later. And even though Jesus keeps coming back to this and reminding his disciples, guys, this is what I'm going to do. And as we looked last week, as he entered Jerusalem for the last time, and, and what he knew was that his impending death that was awaiting him, nothing that was going on on the ground indicated anything other than Jesus was going to be king. That's what all the signs were pointing to. Last week we talked about Palm Sunday, and we talked about the fact that the streets of Jerusalem were just filled with with pilgrims, Jewish people that had come from all over the Mediterranean to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish holiday called Passover. Literally thousands upon thousands of people are filling the streets, and Jesus comes into town, and they hail him as a conquering military hero coming home from from a victorious battle. That's what the palm branches signify. And so he rides into town and people are shouting and saying, you're our savior, you're our king, you know, you're the guy. And so all of that is going on and, and people are welcoming Jesus. And the idea that he would be dead in six days seemed preposterous. I mean, there was just way too much momentum way too many good things happening right now. And I think it's really critical that we remember the backdrop of all of that when we start to look into the disciples' response at what happened. All they really were thinking about, I think, was just, I think they were just filled with excitement and anticipation of what was gonna happen next. I mean, if that's how we're welcomed when we come into town, man, what's Jesus gonna do here? He's got the crowd on his side. And so, when suddenly Jesus is arrested and convicted and beaten and killed in less than a 24-hour period, you can imagine how disorienting that was for his followers. How, how just utterly, just distraught they had to have been, and everything just kind of went to pot. <laughs> All this community, this time they'd spent together really relying on each other, and then, and then stuff starts to go wrong, and it's like every man for himself, right? They're scattered, and they, they don't want to be lumped in with Jesus because it looks like anybody who is could be in trouble too. And the darkness and fear of Friday gives way to the silence and confusion of Saturday, and then, even though Jesus had told them on multiple occasions, multiple occasions, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead, when it happens on Easter Sunday morning, the disciples are in shock, and they don't believe it when people come back from the tomb and tell them, I, I went there, and Jesus isn't there, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, come on, really? And, and what did it mean anyway? I mean, after Jesus had appeared to them on a couple of different occasions, he, he came back in his resurrected body, appeared before the disciples. He even showed them, you know, the scars, let them touch his side. He still really hadn't told them what they're supposed to do. <laughs> the the their, their purpose and, and meaning for their life is still really cloudy. Like, we, we're not really sure what we're supposed to be doing here. And so you can imagine in, in that kind of situation where you're just kind of wandering around and really kind of wondering what's next, what do, you, what do you tend to do? What would you think that you would do? If it were me, I would probably go back to doing something that came very natural to me, something that I had some competency in, that, that, that I could be proficient in, that might give me a little bit of a sense of purpose and success in the midst of this confusion. And so for many of the disciples, that meant going fishing. And so that's where we find them when we look at John chapter 21. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there this morning, your pew Bibles would be page 755. John chapter 21. Starting in verse 1, it says this. It said, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. I love this story. I love this story because it showed the disciples and it shows us today what life in the kingdom of God is like. And I also love it because it makes me believe even more that Scripture is true. Because look at all the really goofy details in this story that are included. John talks about Peter's underwear, okay? He says, you know, he puts his, uh, who knows if he was out there fishing naked. I don't want to, the Bible doesn't say that, but that's kind of the implication. You know, he says, he gives all these details about, well, they were 100 yards from shore. We caught 153 fish. You know, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Like, how cocky is that? Okay. So when I read things like this, I think, you know, if somebody's editing this and trying to make it something that, you know, skeptical people could kind of swallow, they would kind of do without a lot of those details they would they would try to make it look a lot better than the way it's just written which is very real and very raw and it makes me understand like believe even more this was an eyewitness account this is somebody that was there that can tell you exactly how far the boat was from shore exactly how everything went down so i love this story for that reason but what i love about this account more than anything is is the intimacy of jesus You see, the whole way that he operated after the resurrection was so counterintuitive. You know, you would think that if he wanted to make a big splash and really get some people's attention, that he would have gone to the highest building in Jerusalem and stood on top and, you know, sounded a big horn and gotten all those crowds together and been like, ta-da, right? I mean, you tried to kill me. Right, you put me in a cave and you rolled a stone in, you put Roman soldiers in front of there, you know, handcuff me, put me in a bag, put chains around me, whatever, submerge me in a tank of piranhas, or you know, but look at me, here I am, you know, and imagine the the buzz that there would have been, but he doesn 't do that. He goes and hangs out with people that he had relationship with, people that whose hearts were open to him, even though they had a little bit of doubt in the beginning. It took a little bit of convincing for them to really believe it. But throughout history, God's mode of operation is that same way. He he goes to people who are seeking him. He doesn't go to the people that just want the miracle or the healing or the get-out-of-jail card, but he goes to people who are open to him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Are you seeking Jesus? Will you seek him tomorrow and next Sunday? And this is the third different account in the Gospels where the resurrected Jesus shares a meal with people. And sharing a meal in the Jewish culture was a very intimate act. And Jesus wants his followers to know, his disciples, that he is still Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. He's just as much with them now after the resurrection as he was with them at the last supper just a few days before he died. (laughs) And isn't it cool that he serves them? Like, Like God has nothing better to do than to just be a short order cook for the disciples, you know, and making them breakfast. You can imagine him in a hairnet, you know. Maybe a tattoo with an empty tomb on the side, I don't know, you know. Slop and hash for the boys, Right? And besides this theme of intimacy that stands out, this this story is also a very clear demonstration of the difference between self-reliance and God-reliance. Okay, here we have expert fishermen, right? Guys who most of their life have spent most of their days fishing. They know what they're doing, but they can't catch any fish, And one commentator that I read this week kind of reminded me that in in the Gospels, every time the disciples try to go fishing, they never catch anything without Jesus' help. And it's not that they were just idiots or they somehow forgot to fish when Jesus was around or they were just really unlucky. I think Jesus is trying to prove a point here. Remember one of the key teachings that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We talked about this path that Jesus took from the Last Supper up to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was later arrested that night. And on the way, they walked by vineyards, and Jesus used that moment to say, guys, listen, I'm the vine, and you guys are the branches. And anyone that remains in me, anyone that stays connected to me, will bear much fruit or catch much fish when they go out at night. But then he says this. He says, guys, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and in this moment, in the midst of the disciples' confusion and, and, and their and, you know going back to kind of what they know and what they can kind of rely on their own ability and strength, Jesus intervenes with this life lesson and says, guys, you can do so much more if you put your trust in me and stop relying on yourself. And do you ever think that sometimes God allows our efforts to be frustrated in life? when we're trying to do things on our own? Just to kind of prove a point, to, to, to rely on him, to, to lay down our plans and to be open to what he might want to do in any given situation. Well, in addition to this theme of intimacy that's here and, and then this, uh, this theme also of just dependence on God, there's some great little details in this story that I think have some really amazing lessons for us as well. Remember Peter, he's, he's pretty well known for being the guy that disowned Jesus three times, you know, when, when Jesus gets arrested. And, and if you look ahead to the next title in John chapter 21, you're going to see that after breakfast, Jesus has that famous conversation with him where he reinstates Peter and gives him an opportunity to proclaim his, his oath of allegiance to Jesus again. But, but this, at this, in, this incident right now, that, that conversation hasn't happened. So before that interaction... We see Peter throwing himself into the water in verse 7, desperate to get to Jesus. And so, what went through my mind is, is what made Jesus so approachable that Peter knows how Jesus is going to respond to him, even though they both know that he had just betrayed him. And then it made me think about, you know, in my life, when. You know, somebody has wronged me and they're coming to me, obviously, to forgive, ask for forgiveness. Am I that approachable? Or do I kind of put up walls and kind of leave them in the dark about how I'm going to respond when they come to me, kind of making them hurt a little bit? Is reconciliation easy with me? And there's some really interesting details that I've missed before. As the story continues, check out verse 9 again. It says this. It says, so Jesus had them catch all of these fish. And then he says this in verse 9. It says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. So why was it so important for them to go catch fish when Jesus already had fish? Well, I think... You know, part of it gets just back to this whole issue of self-reliance versus God-reliance. But I think the really cool part is this in verse 10. Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And what's funny about that statement, first of all, is that they didn't really catch it. I mean, Jesus kind of allowed them to catch it, if you know what I mean. But he kind of makes it seem like, yeah, man, you guys had a great catch. Bring some of that in, you know. What is Jesus doing here? What does the way that he responds here in verse 10 tell us about how things work in the kingdom of God? What do you think? This is me asking you a question, so you're free to speak. What is he teaching them about how the kingdom of God works here? Yeah, Kendra? Yeah, he allows us to be a part of his plan. And just to allow uh, ourselves to be a part of the blessing of that. He could have just done it on his own. But he gives them the privilege of feeling like they contributed too. And the next question that came to mind for me was why Jesus allowed them to catch so many fish. I mean, why 153 and so that the the nets are about ready to burst? Well, I think it, it gets to this issue of abundance. And, you know, one of the themes of the kingdom of God that you'll read about when you read about what God's kingdom is like is it's just abundant, that God's resources are, are limitless, that they're in the kingdom of God, that there's always more than enough. Jesus' first miracle, he turned water into wine at a wedding, and, and there was more than what they needed. When Jesus, you know, goes and feeds the 5,000 with, with two fish and five loaves of bread, at the end of that story, what do they do? They collect leftovers, right? There's always more than you need. And and so in God's kingdom, there's always more grace and more forgiveness and more love and more hope and more joy than you ever imagined. And when we get to the end of what we feel like our resources are in those categories, God's just getting started. It's a good thing because I run out of patience and love and forgiveness pretty quickly, right? And finally, in verse 13, we see this image of the master Right, this master, he had been kind of commanding them before. Hey, put your, note, your, your nets on this side of the boat and you're going to get something, right? And he switches from, from being the master now to being the servant. And he's cooking them food and he's breaking the bread and breaking the fish and he's giving each guy his portion. And these post-resurrection interactions that Jesus has with his disciples are so important because it teaches us what life in the kingdom is supposed to be like not only the way in which Jesus relates to us, but how we're supposed to be relating to one another, that we're supposed to be in community, that we're supposed to be breaking bread with one another and, and hanging out and investing in each other. And it also teaches us that Jesus is never too busy, that he didn't take time out to be in, in intimate you know, conversation and relationships with those that he loves. And, and every day he calls out to each one of us individually He calls out to us corporately as a church, and he says, guys, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have breakfast with me. Man, I've got spiritual food that I want to give you that's going to sustain you through this day. I want to share that with you. And the implications of Easter, I think, are brought home in in just powerful stories like this that we see recorded in the book of John. What, What do we take away from this story as it applies to the Easter message and what it means for us today? Well, I think first and foremost is just the baseline reality that God is alive. That, that just like he was with the disciples at breakfast that morning, he's with us now. But, but even more than that, because Jesus decided to leave this earth and to go and ascend into heaven, it says that he sent his Holy Spirit to be in us. You see, the disciples walked with Jesus. We get to walk with Jesus in us. I mean, God is closer than he's ever been. Secondly, we see God's desire for us to be a part of his plan to redeem the world. As we said, even today, God, if he wanted to save people in this world or feed the hungry or whatever, he could just snap his fingers and it could all happen without us. But he allows us to be a part of it. And he says, hey, you know, bring your fish over to the grill too, You know, I need some of what you bring to the table. I'm going to let you be a part of the blessing. So he chooses to use us. And finally, Easter reminds us that his provision is more than we need. God gives abundantly. And it's impossible to exhaust his love and grace and forgiveness. You can try to beat it out of him. You can try to nail him to a cross and bleed him dry. You can put him in a cave and roll a stone up. You can put Roman soldiers in front of it to guard it to make sure nobody robs his body. But in the end, God's desire to love his creation is gonna win out. He is going to redeem, he will restore, He will bring love to the unlovable and hope to the hopeless and meaning and purpose to the lost and and the despised and the lowly. And Are we living in that hope each day? You know, one of the pictures that I want you to leave with this morning is when was the last time, like Peter, that you just kind of recklessly jumped out of the boat and, and ran to be with Jesus, or swam to be? When was the last time you woke up in the morning and you were just like, oh man, I am so desperate to be with Jesus this morning. I'm just getting out of bed and I'm so excited to be in his presence, to receive what he has for me today. Because I'm so just, from Peter's perspective, is so glad that Jesus came back. If all he had was that last interaction where he just betrayed him and that was the end of the story, could you imagine what the rest of his life would have been like? But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead meant that there was another opportunity. And there is for each one of us as well. I want to close today with a quote from Pope John Paul II. He said this He said, Do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are the Easter people. And hallelujah is our song. We are the Easter people. We are the redeemed. And it's now our privilege and our opportunity to spread everywhere the aroma of the kingdom of God. That God chooses to use us to be the ones that bring love and hope and mercy and forgiveness and truth to this world. And we get to experience the blessings of that. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you living a life that reflects the life of Christ? Would anyone want your life? Because if nobody would want your life, and they're probably not going to want Jesus either. For those of you that are here this morning who aren't really sure what you think about Jesus, or maybe you know I've never really committed myself to him, I don't want you to miss the Jesus that we talked about this morning. The Jesus that's not really looking for fame and fortune and to get his name out there in lights, but comes to each one of us and wants an intimate relationship with us, wants to sit down and have breakfast with us each and every day and share part of himself with each one of us. The the Jesus that was there with open arms for Peter when he came to him and didn't have to say anything, you know? I want you to know that Jesus. If you don't know that Jesus, I'd love for you to come and talk to me this morning. I'd love to tell you more about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to look into just who you are and how you responded uh, as, as in your post-resurrected form. And God, Easter means everything. My hope, my joy is wrapped up into the fact that you rose from the dead. And that because that's possible, then everything's possible in my life. No matter how bad things are, no matter how desperate or discouraged or how much the odds are stacked against me, I know that I have the power of the Jesus that rose from the dead in me. And that each one of us has the opportunity to have that same power in us. And with that power, man, we really have no excuses. Because God says that if we abide in him and stay connected to him, that we will bear much fruit in life. He will use us. But he also promises us that apart from him, we can't do anything, Well, we can run around and make a lot of things happen. We're very good about that. But it won't be anything that really lasts, anything that's eternal. And at the end of our day, Lord, your word tells us that, that, that you're going to line up everything that we do. And it's going to roll kind of like on a conveyor belt. And it says that there's going to be this fire that's going to test it. And the things that are just man-made or in our own effort, those things are just going to burn up and they're going to count for nothing. But the things that we do in your strength where we allowed you to work through us, those things are going to last. They're going to withstand the test. And we're going to get to share in the blessings of the changed lives that you've used us to be a part of. And God, I want my life to matter. I want my life to count. I want people to know you because they know me. And I pray that people would have that same desire here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us as we...